We were all amazed at the situation they were in to begin with because they were pretty much just hanging on to a cliff face. The Air National Guard rescues two sheep hunters who were clinging to the side of a cliff. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Thursday, August 17th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, the U.S. Assistant Health Secretary visits Alaska to talk public health, including opioid addiction treatment. We don't view it as a crutch. Medication for opioid use disorder is like we use medicines for other disorders. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community, and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope, there's joy, there's love, there's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org slash share your strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. Alaska state troopers are looking for a couple of tourists from Tennessee who missed their return flight home and have not contacted family members. 50-year-old Jonas Barr and 37-year-old Cynthia Hovespain were reported missing over the weekend. Fairbanks police checked the room where the couple was staying and found their luggage, and troopers located the couple's vehicle at China Hot Springs Resort on Saturday. The Alaska State Troopers and Alaska Wildlife Troopers have uh, been out at Sheena Hot Springs Resort uh, since Sunday daily, uh, working with both professional search and rescue teams as well as canine tracking teams uh, in search of this missing couple. Trooper spokesperson Austin McDaniel says they'd appreciate some help from members of the public who might know something about the case. If anyone has firsthand knowledge of the location of these two individuals that, uh, that they haven't reported to law enforcement, Uh, They can certainly call either the Fairbanks Police Department or the Alaska State Troopers at 907-451-5100. McDaniel says they can also report tips anonymously through the Alaska State Troopers website or through the AK Tips smartphone app. The Alaska Air National Guard rescued two sheep hunters last week who were stuck on a cliff face thousands of feet above the ground. Captain Tim Lazama helped with the rescue. He says the hunters followed a sheep onto the cliff Friday night, and then they got trapped. They sent a satellite SOS signal from the site near Tonsina, about 165 miles east of Anchorage. They were 6,000 feet up on the side of a steep and rocky mountain holding on. We were all amazed at the situation they were in to begin with, because they were pretty much just hanging on to a cliff face. There was nowhere for them to really go outside of us picking them off that cliff face. A Pavehawk helicopter piloted by Lazama and a rescue plane were scrambled from Anchorage's Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson. The hunters spent about two hours on the cliff face before help arrived. Lazama says the helicopter could not initially hover above the hunters because the crew worried it might blow them off the cliff. Instead, para-rescue men set belay lines from the top of the cliff. Then they were lowered from the helicopter's hoist, picking the hunters up one at a time. Then 15-ish minutes, 15 to 20 minutes of us getting there on scene, um, we were hoisting them off. Lazama says the hunter's in-reach satellite communicator saved their lives. The U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health, Admiral Rachel Levine, traveled throughout Alaska last week to consult with tribal health organizations and learn more about the unique public health challenges of the state. Levine has a background in pediatrics and eating disorders, 
In her position, her office oversees several specialty public health programs, like those focused on climate and health equity, long COVID, and health issues for minorities. In Alaska, she prioritized learning about climate and health equity, LGBTQ plus health, and maternal health. In an interview as the trip was wrapping up, Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra asked Levine about what stuck out from her time in the state. I was here to listen and to learn about the public health challenges in Alaska and discuss potential solutions. So what stood out was trips to rural Alaska, to Nome and to Savunga, Kotzebue, Kayana, Utiavik, and meeting the people there. Uh, meeting the healthcare personnel there, but also just being in those towns and villages. And I know you had meetings with tribal health organizations. What did you learn during the consultation? We learned about uh, the great work that they are doing, both in their towns, but also the villages that they serve, but also heard about a lot of the different challenges of, of doing that. You know, I think that they have made amazing use of telehealth in those areas and are just very innovative and creative. Uh, but there are difficulties in providing care for sometimes acutely ill people. I mean, stabilization and then transport throughout the state, challenges in terms of impacts of the weather. Some of the specific issues that we heard about were the impacts of climate change on the way of life in the towns and villages. We saw the impacts of climate change on traditional food sources. In Alaska, we've seen overdose rates rise with the prevalence of synthetics like fentanyl. Are there solutions that you wish more states would use? There are no quick fixes here. There, there's no magic bullet. I think it is really looking at different prevention strategies, which I know is being done in Alaska. I think the harm reduction strategies are very important. That can include naloxone. Naloxone reverses opioid overdoses. I think that there are opportunities for more medication for opioid use disorder, such as buprenorphine. There's still a lot of stigma associated with that, that it's a crutch. And we don't view it as a crutch. Medication for opioid use disorder is like we use medicines for other disorders. The medication, again, is not a crutch. It's not a cure. It's a treatment. And it can be a very, very powerful treatment. I've heard from leaders in the field that eating disorders in the state have increased over the COVID pandemic, especially for young people. What do you wish Alaskans knew about eating disorders? Sure. Eating disorders, particularly in young people, are treatable. And the vast majority of young people with anorexia, bulimia, et cetera, they, can, they, they completely recover. Uh, and I think that that's not widely known. I think that people tend to think it's a lifelong disorder. And it can be. It can become a chronic illness. But the vast majority do not. Uh, we have certainly seen an increase in eating disorders throughout the country during the, the pandemic, you know, really associated with a lot of the mental health challenges that young people have faced. Um, there are not enough eating disorder treatment programs and professionals available. You know, I think that early recognition is really important. So recognizing the signs and symptoms of an eating disorder, because the more entrenched it gets, the longer it goes on, then the harder it is to treat. Often in the U.S., mental and physical health are considered separate. Obviously, there's lots of intersections. Can you talk a bit about that? The integration of physical and mental health I've always found very important and interesting, and that's what drew me to adolescent medicine in the first place. And I think it's so important now, especially coming out of the pandemic, because the physical and mental health challenges that we're seeing across the nation and Alaska are all related. Your mind and body are connected. And I think that that's one of the keys to medical care and public health in the future.
That was U.S. Assistant Secretary for Health Admiral Rachel Levine speaking with Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra. Levine visited villages and cities throughout Alaska last week. Still to come on Alaska News, nightly Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's Alaska ferry tour ended with a breakdown. When uh, a new vessel encounters issues, that's also a reminder that uh, uh, having a new vessel is uh, not all there is to the story. That story coming up. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Invasive plants and animals threaten Alaska's environment and economy and can spread to new locations by hitching a ride. Anyone can help prevent the spread of invasive species by remembering to play clean go, removing all plants, animals, and mud from boots, gear, and vehicles before entering and leaving recreational areas will help stop invasive species in their tracks. Learn more at playcleango.org. This message sponsored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spent the last day of his Alaska trip in Southeast. As KTLO's Katie Anastas reports, he focused on the ferry system during a stop at the Juneau Airport. On his last day in Alaska, Buttigieg and Senator Lisa Murkowski took the MV Hubbard from Juneau to Haines. But after they got off the state's newest ferry, it stopped running. One of its generators had been shutting down intermittently. I didn't touch a thing, I swear. (laughs) Murkowski and Buttigieg spoke to reporters on the tarmac at Juno Seaplane Terminal. In most of the ferry fleet, what we're worrying worrying about is its age. Uh, But when uh, a new vessel encounters issues, that's also a reminder that uh, uh, having a new vessel is uh, not all there is to the story. Uh, We need to make sure that uh, we're creating the framework where uh, operations, maintenance, and capital planning can, uh, can go well. Buttigieg spent three days in Alaska. He traveled to Kotzebue, Anchorage, and Haines, learning about the state's transportation needs and highlighting projects made possible by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The bill allocated more than $285 million to Alaska's ferry system to replace the Testamina, modernize four other ferries, upgrade rural ferry terminals, and support operations. Those projects require a funding match from the state of about $105 million. The state says that money will come from a few different sources. Uh, You know, states that that put forward uh, a healthy uh, level of skin in the game on their side are often able to unlock that much more federal support on our side. But Murkowski said staffing remains a challenge for the ferry system. Its reservation center reduced hours this month due to staff shortages, and they're only taking reservations on the Kennecott through February because of a crew shortage. And you can't operate a ferry. Whether it's in good running condition or whether it's a 54-year-old ship, you can't operate it without the men and women. The ferry system could have even more sources of federal funding. The U.S. Department of Transportation announced Wednesday that 6,500 miles of navigable waterways in southwestern and northern Alaska would be added to the United States Marine Highway Program. When you enter into the uh, uh, Marine Highway Program, you're part of a national designation that can mean greater access to grant funding and policy attention. The designation doesn't add new ferry service, but it could open up funding for future transportation projects in those regions. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. A small group of women-owned outdoor businesses in Alaska have found an eager market in Alaska and the lower 48. The entrepreneurs have formed an informal cohort holding quarterly meetings to discuss best practices and offer support. As Alaska Public Media's Michael Finelli reports, they call themselves the Outdoor Alliance. 
Austin Ashcraft is sitting in front of a tall metal machine in the Heather's Choice kitchen. The machine dispenses portioned amounts of dried salmon, veggies, and potato flakes into an open package, which he then shakes vigorously before sealing it. You know why he does the shake? So that when you go to pack your backpack, the meal is as flat as it can possibly be. Oh, that's Heather Kelly, namesake of the dehydrated food company she started back in 2014, after realizing how difficult it was to pack food for extended backcountry trips. Having worked as a sports nutritionist, she focused on high-quality, healthy meals in a bag. In contrast to most of her competitors who freeze-dry their food, Kelly dehydrates everything. That means her meals are slightly heavier and have a shorter shelf life, but provide a distinct advantage for backpacking. If you were to take a bunch of grapes and freeze dry them, they would maintain their original size and shape. Where with dehydrated, if you dehydrate a bunch of grapes, you get a box of raisins. And that's one big differentiator for us at Heather's Choice is that we take up way less pack space than our freeze dried counterparts. The company has been growing quickly in the lower 48, recently partnering with a national sales group to get their meals in hundreds more stores. Heather's Choice is one of at least half a dozen up-and-coming women-led outdoor recreation businesses in Anchorage. In recent years, women have been making inroads in the traditionally male-dominated industry, and there seems to be a higher concentration of the female leaders here in Alaska. Kelly says there's a group of local businesswomen who meet up regularly to talk shop. We actually have a really sweet group of entrepreneurs here in Anchorage that includes fishyware, it includes Scoop, Elevated Oats, AK Coffee Company, Versa Outfitters, Alpine Fit. There's just this awesome group of woman-owned local Alaskan outdoor brands. And we get together quarterly and just share war stories of whatever we're dealing with. Informally called the Outdoor Alliance, some of those companies have had success by filling a need for outdoor apparel designed specifically for women. Fishywear, that's F-I-S-H-E, was started by Linda Leary, who realized fisherwomen needed a better garment than cotton long johns to wear under their waders. You don't want to take your waders off and have anybody see you in your long johns. So I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why not have clothes that you can go right from the river to dinner? And uh, so it can be functional for fishing, but you can just lifestyle as well. Their bright colored patterns featuring fun, sassy fish, in Leary's words, have taken off in Alaska's fishing community, and the company just opened a new storefront in downtown Anchorage. John Bittner directs the Alaska Small Business Development Center and has worked with many of the small business owners in town. He says there's data that backs the apparent trend of female business leaders in the state. What you'll find is there's been studies that show that Alaska actually punches pretty well above its weight class when it comes to women-owned businesses. You know, it's a natural it's a natural fit for an outdoor-specific industry up here. A 2018 study from the University of Alaska Anchorage found that Alaska had the highest rate of female-owned businesses in the country. And Bittner says, especially in manufacturing, the support those businesses are offering each other can go a long way. And so being able to access people that are in the same situation you are, who have already learned some of the lessons that you won't need to learn yourself, you can just learn from their experience. I think that's huge. 
Um, and I think it, there's been a desperate need for something like that for a really long time. For example, Leary says she's currently focused on a contest with national retailer Title IX, with the encouragement of fellow Outdoor Alliance member Jen Loofborough, who won the contest a couple years ago. Loofborough runs Alpine Fit, another apparel company that sells stink-resistant base layers and offers multiple body shape options in each size, something she says was desperately needed for active women. I have seen women like try them on and be in tears of joy that they finally have a pair of pants that they can feel and look the part that they want to be to go out and do the activities that they want to do. Loofborough says at the Alpine Fit store in Midtown Anchorage, they recently started displaying products from Versa Outfitters and two other women-owned businesses that don't have storefronts in the city. In Anchorage, I'm Michael Finelli. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Northern Air Cargo, providing cargo transportation to nine Alaska communities. NAC offers options including cargo charters to get freight where it needs to be. Northern Air Cargo, serving Alaska since 1956. Whether this is your first try to quit or you've been down this path before, Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line can help you quit for good. Get help creating a plan that is right for you no matter if you smoke cigarettes, vape, use smokeless tobacco, or ICMIC. With options like calling a coach, receiving text messages, and nicotine replacement therapy with patches or gum, you can quit your way at any time of day or night. Call Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line at 1-800-QUIT-NOW or visit alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by Alaska's Tobacco Quit Line. The Anchorage School District welcomed students back to school today, and for the more than 200 students who attended Abbott Loop Elementary, it was a day of transition. The district closed Abbott Loop last year, citing budget concerns and low enrollment. Alaska Public Media's Tim Rocky met up with students and staff settling into their new school, Kasoon Elementary, and has this story. It's the first day of school, and students are trickling in the front door. Morning, guys. Welcome back. How are we all doing? Good. All right. Have a wonderful first day. Nine-year-old Colby Whitbeck is starting third grade at Kasoon. He says he didn't want to leave Abbott Loop. Made me feel like I wanted to stay at one place and not move to another place. Colby's father, Rick Whitbeck, was president of the parent-teacher organization at Abbott Loop and now holds that same position at Kassoon. Whitbeck understands the budget issues facing the district, but he says he felt like Abbott Loop got singled out during the budget discussions. He was worried that Abbott Loop families would be negatively impacted by the transition, but he says the families have been welcomed at Kassoon. As far as I know, having talked to the families that I've talked to over the summer and as we prepared for this year, I don't know of one family that got left behind. So the administration, to their credit, and the, and the board and the planning, I think all came together. The district had originally proposed closing as many as six schools to save over $4 million, but decided only to close Abbott Loop. Without a permanent increase to the base student allocation, the funding formula used to determine how much Alaska schools received from the state, ASD Superintendent Jarrett Bryant says that more schools may have to close in order to pass a balanced budget. Going into the next fiscal year, ASD is looking at a budget deficit exceeding $80 million potentially. That's huge. And because I'm committed to passing a balanced budget in January, I'm going to have to have very difficult conversations with the community that involve potentially raising class sizes, staff reductions, unveiling a long-range school consolidation plan over the next several years. 
Kassoon principal Corey Engstrom says that as new teachers from Abbott Loop are brought over, she wanted to make sure that their classrooms were mixed in among the other teachers and not separated in their own group. Really, the emphasis was on welcoming the students and the staff to our community and the families to our community. Five teachers from Abbott Loop moved with their students to Kassoon. Dana Kane has been a teacher for over three decades and spent the last two years at Abbott Loop. Kane says that the decision to close Abbott Loop brought out a lot of emotions from both students and staff. It really was devastating because down my hallway, we were a family and we all looked out for each other. And it just the fear of not working together and not being together and our students not knowing where our students would be. That really, that just tore our hearts out because we get attached to our students. Abbott Loop was built in the 1960s and is currently occupied by the Alaska Native Charter School, which had been housed inside of Betty Davis East Anchorage High School previously. A smaller group of Abbott Loop students were transferred over to Trailside Elementary. Kane says it was exciting to see familiar faces in the hallway on the first day. For me, it's really warmed my heart. I've been really excited. And then to see their face when they see me, somebody they recognize, to see that excitement. It's like, okay, it's going to be okay. We know somebody here. And I've had some who ran to me to grab hugs. Parents ran to me to get hugs. And it's just, welcome to our family here. After the morning bell rang, all of the students and staff were Kassoon Knights, regardless of where they went last year. In Anchorage, I'm Tim Rocky. Just days after the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service returned management of the Kuskokwim River to the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, the state announced eight separate commercial openers in August. These opportunities are only available to individuals registered as what are known as catcher-sellers. On the Kuskokwim, there is only one, and his name is Fran Rich. KYUK's Evan Erickson has more. Drifting down the river near Bethel, snaring silver salmon in his 300-foot gillnet on Wednesday's opener, Rich said his first set of the day was going well. The way the net is acting and how hard it's pulling, it means that we probably have 40 50 fish in the Rich has been the sole catcher-seller on the Kuskokwim River for around a decade. He said that he's retired, but that fishing is just in his blood. He runs a small company called Far West Fish and Farm out of his home in Bethel. Rich got in early with commercial fishing on the Kuskokwim, trading a piece of land he owned in Bethel to the now-defunct Kuskokwim Fishermen's Cooperative for the necessary permit in 1978. In a way that was kind of unique to trade land for the right to fish, now, with the exception of Rich, commercial fishing on the Kuskokwim River is virtually non-existent. But according to Fish and Game, it wasn't always this way. The 1980s saw annual commercial king salmon harvests averaging 70,000 fish along the Kuskokwim and its coastal districts. As for the silver salmon that Rich was busy out on the river catching, average annual harvests in the 90s topped half a million fish. These days, things are a little more laid back. Outside of the occasional larger order from a buyer like Alaska Commercial Company, Rich said he mostly deals with local clientele himself. Many of them are Bethel people who uh, don't have access to boats. Uh, many of them are new to town. So it's oftentimes small sales. A couple of fish here, four or five fish there. After nearly 50 years in the game, 
Rich said he is enjoying the opportunity to get out on the water, even if he's the only one out there doing it commercially. You always hope that at some point, the way capitalism operates, the way the regulatory climate is, but at some point it'll it'll make sense. But in the meantime, it's the workouts you get and just the joy of harvesting fish, it all makes sense to me. Rich said he isn't sure how much he'll be out on the river during the August commercial openers, but that he's ready and willing to fulfill any orders that come his way. In Bethel, I'm Evan Erickson. The Kodiak Pacific Spaceport Complex on Narrow Cape near the end of the island's road system held an open house on Monday. It comes as Alaska Aerospace, which owns and operates the facility, is in the process of renewing its land use agreement for the complex. KMXD's Brian Venwa got a tour of the spaceport and has this story. The lobby was packed with adults and kids waiting for van tours to see the spaceport's laboratories, mission control, and even the launch sites. Alaska Aerospace's interim CEO and president, John Kramer, was in a conference room near the entrance and held question and answer sessions for groups. How many of you is this your first time coming to the spaceport? A recent criticism of the company has been transparency. This is the first tour day at the Pacific Spaceport Complex since the pandemic, and Kramer says it's just the first step to improving communication with the public. A couple of things. Um, We're spending some money right now to purchase some reader boards. So these are the lighted signs that you see alongside the road. The ones that we have been using up until now, uh, you had to manually adjust. The goal with the new signs is to keep folks headed to the Pasagshack area updated on the road and beach closures due to testing or launches at the facility. Kramer also plans to update their website as often as possible and send out closure announcements over the radio leading up to launches. The push for transparency also comes as the corporation seeks to renew its lease for the area. The agreement allows the company to use the area for rocket testing and launches. The current lease is set to expire next year, and Alaska Aerospace wants to renew it for another three decades. The existing agreement permits the company to have a bit over 3,700 acres of land for its core launch facility, and the renewal application outlines nearly the same footprint. We're renewing the lease that we have and have had for the past 25-30 years. So it's a renewal. The only real change, uh, substance change that's in there is we're letting folks know that we have an interest in the old Loran site. The old Loran site is a parcel of about 90 acres that the Coast Guard used for long-range navigation systems. The station is no longer in operation. But critics of the spaceport have claimed it's an attempt to control more than 7,000 acres in addition to their current facilities. Kramer says that land is also in the current lease as the complex's safety closure zone for launches. We've always had uh, the ability to shut down access on launch day uh, more acreage than we usually do. We just haven't because we haven't had a need to. Um, That's not going to change. It's going to be the same. The renewal application has plans for potential expansion, including new warehouses and more roads around the spaceport's current campus. One of the company's upcoming construction plans is to rebuild a launch pad that was damaged after an anomaly caused a rocket to crash land in January. The public can read over the application and send comments to the Alaska Department of Natural Resources by October 12. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Benoit.
And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. We had reports tonight from Tim Ellison, Delta Junction, Chris Clint, Rachel Cassandra, and Michael Finelli in Anchorage, Katie Nassis in Juneau, Evan Erickson in Bethel, and Brian Benoit in Kodiak. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde. Tim Rocky is our producer and education reporter. I'm just Casey Grove. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by Princess Lodges, offering glass-domed railcar tours to Talkeetna and Denali National Park for Alaska summer adventures. Your journey begins at princesslodges.com. And by Alaska Air Cargo, serving the commerce and business needs of 20 Alaska communities, from Adak to Barrow to Ketchikan. More information at alaskacargo.com. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.